Our scripture this morning is Philippians 3, 7 through 11. It is in, on page 1044 in your pew Bible. And I'll be reading from the New King James Version. But what things we were to gain, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being confirmed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Do you know my Jesus? That song we just sung has been around for almost 50 years. And I think one of the reasons that it's appealing to us, one of the reasons we sing it often, is because of the question that it asks. Do you know my Jesus? That's a powerful question. It's an important question. There's something about that question that intrigues us. In fact, it must be an important question because when we look around our society today in our country, there are several different people that are trying to give us an answer to that question. And depending on what author you read or what television or radio program you watch or what philosophy or school of thought that you might hold to, you can have a different answer for how you know Jesus. One group might say that we know Jesus by an experience that's better felt than told. And I can't explain it to you, but you'll know it when it happens. Others might say, well, I've got this one statement that I, I read or that I recite or a prayer that I say, and that's how we know Jesus. Others might say, well, there are a whole series of works you have to go through before you can know Jesus. And so when we have all these answers competing for our attention, it's easy to stand in confusion and wonder, how do I know Jesus? And that's what I want us to ask ourselves this morning for just a few minutes. Not just, do you know my Jesus? Do I know Jesus? But how can we know Him? How can we know Christ? And if you're visiting with us, we're thrilled that you're here. We know there are several new faces, and we'd love to get to know you and to stay around after worship and be an encouragement to you. You've already encouraged us. And so uh, we want to get to know you better and see if there's any way that we can help you. And if you're visiting with us, we'd love for you to ask yourself that question along with the rest of us. And as we search God's Word, if you didn't bring a Bible, there are some in the pews or the seats in front of you, and we'll have the page numbers on the screen, and we'd encourage you to search God's Word with us. Because when we think about knowing Jesus, we're not going to look at what a, a television personality might say or an author of a book might say. We're going to look at what God has to tell us about knowing Christ. Specifically, what he tells us through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And so that brings us to Philippians chapter 3. And if you haven't already turned there in your Bibles, I wish you would as we continue our walk through Philippians. 
we're studying about how we can have joy in our Christian journey. And Paul writes the book of Philippians, you'll remember, from jail, which is an interesting place to write a book that talks about joy. And he was writing to a church that was experiencing some kind of persecution. And yet he keeps saying things like joy and using words like rejoice. And so how can we infuse joy into our lives as Christians? Well, last week as we began this series, we looked at joy in unity, joy in humility. And now as we reach chapter 3, Paul is going to talk about knowledge. We can have joy through knowledge. Not just any knowledge, but a knowledge of Christ. If you'll look with me in the verses that Trey just read for us, at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul spends a couple of verses listing his resume. You'll remember that before Paul was converted, he had a very impressive resume as a Pharisee. In fact, he describes himself here as a Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, he had the right background, he had the right pedigree, he'd been to the right schools, he had the right zeal, he had it all in place. Paul was someone, when he was Saul of Tarsus, who had it all together. And so as Paul lists this resume, it would be pretty impressive for those who are familiar with the Jewish culture. In fact, even today, it's impressive to us to look at all Paul had accomplished. But notice how he describes that in verse 7. He's listed all of these accomplishments of his past. But in verse 7, he says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge, there's that word again, knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Now let's pause right there. Did you notice how Paul dealt with his past compared to Christ? He even used the word rubbish to describe all of his achievements and all of his accomplishments. And that word rubbish is interesting because this is the only time we see it in the New Testament in this specific use. When we look at the translation for that word rubbish, it can mean one of two things. It can mean either human waste or it can mean trash. The kind of trash that would be thrown out into the street. One translator says it's what a street sweeper would pick up as he was cleaning out the street. You can imagine that after a, a Titans game in the stadium, as the maintenance staff goes through and cleans out all the trash in those stands, that's the kind of rubbish that Paul is talking about here. And did you notice that when he compares his achievements with knowing Christ, he doesn't make the decision the same way we would make buying a car. For instance, if you and I were going to look for a car, we might have two cars that we liked pretty well. And we might look at these cars and say, well, I like them both, but this one has a little better gas mileage. Or the price is a little better on this one. Or, or this one just has better options on it. I like this one. You see, for Paul, there's no comparison. Sure, he had all these great achievements, but when he compared them to Christ, he said, not only do I choose Christ, but I treat everything else as if it were rubbish, as if it were trash. It's pretty harsh language, but it illustrates how much Paul valued knowing Christ. And when he uses the word know over and over again, it's interesting because the word is, is derived from the Greek word gnosko, which indicates not just knowing about something, but an intimate knowledge. Not just knowing the facts about Christ, but an intimate knowledge of Christ. Paul knew the facts about Jesus. He had even persecuted Christians at one point in his life. And he knew the facts about Jesus being the Messiah and being raised from the dead. But Paul also knew Christ because he lived a life dedicated to Him. Let me illustrate it this way. The group that just returned from El Salvador last week, they know what it's like to spend a week in El Salvador on a mission trip. 
If you were to come up to me and say, Andrew, do you know what it's like to go on a mission trip to El Salvador for a week? Now, I've never been, but intellectually I can think, well, there'd be a long plane ride, so you'd probably be pretty tired. And then it's going to be hot there, so that would be a challenge, working in the heat. There's a language barrier there, so it would be a challenge to communicate that. And I list all these things in my head, and I could say, sure, I know what it's like to go on a mission trip to El Salvador. But if you were to ask someone who actually went on the trip if I knew what it was like, they would say, no, he doesn't know what it's like, because I don't. I might know intellectually what it's like, but those who went on that trip, they know what it's like. They know what it's like to get off the plane and to be in a totally different culture, surrounded by different people. They know what it's like to minister day after day in those kinds of conditions. I might know intellectually, but I don't know from experience. That's the kind of knowledge Paul is talking about here. Not just a knowledge about Christ, but really knowing Christ. There are several scholars and universities all across the country that know the words of this book backwards and forwards. Treating the Bible as any other literature, that might be their field of expertise. And they might even be able to quote more Scripture than you or I could. But there are several people who know the words of the Bible well, but they don't know Christ. They don't believe in God. They don't choose to be Christians. And so it's not enough just to know intellectually. We have to know from a life that's dedicated to His service. Paul definitely lived a life dedicated to the service of Christ. And it's really interesting, as we go into verse 10, Paul is going to give us three different facts about Christ we have to understand to know Him. And so as we're asking ourselves the question, how can I know Christ? How can I have this knowledge Paul keeps talking about? He's going to let us know in verse 10. Paul says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So as Paul describes knowing Christ, he gives us three aspects of Christ's life and His mission on earth that we have to understand in order to know Him. If we want to have the kind of knowledge Paul had, we have to understand these three aspects of Christ's life. The first one that Paul lists is the power of His resurrection. The power of Jesus' resurrection. If I want to know Christ, I have to understand why the resurrection was so important. And as we look at these three topics, we could spend hours in each one of them, but we're just going to walk through them and, and pick up on some highlights of each one. So as I think about the power of the resurrection, if I'm asking myself, why is the resurrection so powerful? Why is this such a big deal? As we look through the New Testament, we see a couple of reasons. Number one, the resurrection proved that Jesus was who He said He was. The resurrection proved that Jesus was the Messiah. You may remember that in the Old Testament, there were many men inspired by God who wrote prophecies about what the Messiah, the Savior, would do when He came. And so as Jesus begins living His life, He starts to fulfill these prophecies. And it's amazing to look at the life of Jesus and see all the Old Testament prophecies fulfilled. And one of the ways He fulfilled those prophecies was in the resurrection. And there are several examples, but let's flip over to Acts chapter 2 and verse 31. Let's look at one specific example the Apostle Peter mentions. And that's 967 in those Bibles in the pews in front of you. But in Acts chapter 2, uh, Paul gives that famous sermon on the day of Pentecost. But look what he references. He begins talking about David, who would have been a very familiar character to all those Jews around, and begins talking about a psalm of David. And in verse 31, Peter says, He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So here Peter is taking a psalm 
that those Jews would have been familiar with, and he's putting it in a whole new light because he's saying, don't you see that, that when David wrote this in Psalm 16 and verse 10, he was prophesying about Christ. Peter makes that connection. And as we look through the Old Testament, we see several prophecies concerning Christ and then even some concerning his resurrection. And so I have to understand the resurrection of Christ, the power that's there if I want to really know him. The resurrection proved that Jesus was who he said he was. It also proves that God has power over death. Have you noticed that? Throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus was able to raise the dead, but even when Jesus himself was submitted to cruel torture, to a disgraceful death, his resurrection proves that God has the ultimate control, the ultimate power over death. Don't you think that would have been comforting for Paul and the Philippians? I mean, here they are suffering. Paul's in prison. Don't you think it's comforting to know that the God they served had power over death? We can take that same comfort today. Our persecution might not take the same form that it took for Paul and the Philippians, but we can know that God is more powerful than death. Even though for us as human beings, death is the great unknown, and there's so much that we wish we knew, and we've, we've never experienced it, we can't picture what everything will be like, but we know the God we serve is in control. Reminds me of a story I heard years ago of a family whose house was on fire. And it was late at night as the family was trying to evacuate the house, and one of the elementary school daughters was in her room upstairs, and she went to the door, and she felt there was heat behind the door. And she heard her parents telling her not to go out because the fire was right there. It had pinned her in her room. And so she heard her parents calling her to go to the window. So she goes to her bedroom window, opens it up, and there's her father. He's gotten up on a stepladder, and he's standing there, and he's telling her to jump, and he'll catch her. Now by this time, of course, there's smoke everywhere, and, and she's blinded by the smoke, and her eyes are watering, and that's mixed with the tears because she's scared, and she's crying, and she cries out, but Daddy, I can't see you. And her father's response was, I know, but I can see you. Now jump. Here she was, facing a great unknown. She didn't know what was beyond that smoke, but her father did. And as we face death, knowing the power of Jesus' resurrection, we might not be able to understand everything about death, but we know we serve a God who's in control. It proves that Jesus was the Messiah and that God has power over death. So if I want to know Christ, the power of the resurrection is very important. But notice the next thing that Paul lists, because... This is a little bit odd. The power of the resurrection is a very positive concept. But notice that right after that, he mentions the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, wait a minute. Is that really the best topic to bring up to the Philippians? I mean, Paul's in jail. The Philippians are being persecuted. Is that really what we want to talk about, sharing in his sufferings? What good can come out of suffering? What, what from Christian suffering can they learn about Christ? How can they know Christ better through suffering? Well, suffering is a deep topic, and it's not a simple one. But as we look through the New Testament, we do see a, a few aspects of suffering displayed by Christians as they were persecuted all throughout the New Testament. I'm amazed at how quickly the church grows when it's persecuted, when there's suffering. And there are a few things that we learn. Number one, we learn that suffering can help us better understand what Jesus endured. Having fellowship with his suffering... Paul in Philippians chapter 2 has described what Jesus did in coming to this earth and, and humbling himself to become obedient to even death on a cross. And don't you imagine that as he was persecuted, as the Philippians were facing persecution, don't you imagine they thought of what Jesus had gone through? As Paul was beaten, don't you think that he thought about Jesus being mocked and beaten? As those who were Christians were martyred for their faith, some of them, don't you think they imagined what Jesus had gone through? 
And even today when we suffer, when people mock us for being Christians, we can think back of how Jesus was mocked. And if people treat us harshly, and if becoming a Christian costs us friendships, friends that we thought were dear to us, we can remember about Jesus losing some friends and losing some followers. It can help us understand what Christ endured. Suffering can also be a sign that we're doing the right thing. I want to read to you a verse in in Acts chapter 5 and verse 41. After several of the disciples have been called before the Sanhedrin, I just want to read one verse that is really amazing as we consider the attitude of those who had suffered. Look at what happens in in verse 41 of Acts chapter 5 as they've been called before the Sanhedrin. They've already been called into question for serving Christ. And look at what happens when they departed. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name, the name of Christ. There are occasions in the New Testament when Christians were excited about suffering because that proved they were doing the right thing. They were worthy enough to suffer for the name of Christ. So sometimes suffering can be a sign that we're fulfilling God's mission. Suffering can also remind us that the earth is not our final destination. It's easy to get comfortable here, but when we suffer, we're reminded that God has prepared for us a place we can't imagine. It's beyond our wildest dreams, and it's beyond any form of suffering that we might experience. We sing, this world is not our home, often, but sometimes we live like it is. Well, when we suffer, when we share in the fellowship of suffering, we can be reminded that we have a better place to go. And thirdly, Paul mentions conformity to his death. He talks about the power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings, and being conformed to his death. And this one might be a little bit more difficult to understand. Because we can think about understanding the power of resurrection. That's positive. That's good. Okay, sharing in his sufferings. That's not as positive, but I can understand that. But being conformed to his death, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us as Christians? Paul writes in another letter a few verses that I think shed a lot of light on this subject. It's in Romans chapter 6, and that's page 1003 in your pew Bibles. If you would flip over to that passage with me as we think about being conformed to his death. I just want to read the first few verses of Romans chapter 6 because Paul here paints a wonderful picture of being conformed to the death of Christ. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And then look at verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. When we're conformed to the death of Christ, it's not a physical death the same way that Christ suffered and died, but we crucify our old self. We die to sin. And we start walking in a new life with Jesus. And here Paul paints a wonderful picture of, of baptism as that death, dying to our old way of life and rising up to walk in a new way of life. And there are some parallels we can make there. Because as we think about Christ's death on the cross, it was very painful. And when we die to our our old selves, when we die to sin, we might experience some pain. It might be difficult to give up some habits that we once enjoyed, but we know God doesn't want us to do. It might be difficult for us to give up some associations, maybe even some friendships that aren't what God would have us to do. 
but as we die to ourselves, the sacrifice we're called to make. Jesus' death was also shameful. It was disgraceful. People didn't talk about dying on a cross, and sometimes we'll experience that kind of shame or disgrace, maybe even humiliation as Christians. When we die to our old selves, when we die to sin, we might experience some humiliation. But it's a sacrifice we're called to make. And ultimately, the parallel that is most comforting is that when we die to our old selves and we rise up in a newness of life, we're reminded that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't the end of the story. It wasn't the final sentence in the story of the Gospels because Jesus arose from the dead. It wasn't the end of the line. It was a gateway into a new life. And that's what dying to ourselves is for us. It's not the end of fun. It's, it's not the end of enjoyment in life. It's the gateway to a fulfillment we can't even imagine until we begin that walk. And so when we're conformed to his death, that beautiful picture of putting away our old self in baptism and rising up to walk in a new life, we make an important sacrifice, but it's one we'll never regret. So Paul describes ways to know Christ. As we think about the power of his resurrection and sharing in his sufferings, conforming to his death, I'd like for us to look at one other passage in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, we'll look specifically at verses 22 and 23. That's page 855 in those Bibles in the pews in front of you. Jesus said several things while he was on earth that have become famous, that have become well-known. His miracles are often talked about. His parables have been handed down for centuries. And probably the most famous discourse Jesus ever gave was the Sermon on the Mount. And there are a couple of verses here tucked in the end of Matthew chapter 7 that are important. Because Jesus paints a picture of judgment. And he deals with the harsh reality that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, to me will enter heaven. And let's look at what verse 22 says. He says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Look at verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now this is a challenging passage. Because Jesus is saying that when it comes time to be judged, there will be people who say, but, but Lord, weren't we religious? Didn't we do things in your name? Weren't we good people? Didn't we do miracles? Didn't we perform all these good deeds and do them in your name? But notice Jesus' response. He doesn't challenge the fact that they did those things. He doesn't challenge the fact that those deeds really took place, that they fulfilled those activities. Jesus says, I never knew you. And the same word he uses here for knowledge is the word that Paul is using in Philippians chapter 3. That's why knowledge of Christ is so important to Paul, because it's necessary for us to have an eternal life with Jesus. Do you want to know why Paul prized knowledge above all else? Because he prized an eternal life with God above all else. And it's challenging to us to think that we could go before Jesus and say, well, wasn't I a good person? Didn't I live a good life? Wasn't I good to my family, to my friends? Wasn't I nice at work? Didn't I have integrity? Didn't I have courage? Wasn't I generous? But if we don't know Christ, then we might hear the same response that Jesus describes here. Now, as we think about that concept, that might strike you as a pretty negative thing. That might strike you as, as a negative claim, that in order to go to heaven, the only way is that for Jesus to be able to say that He knows us. That the only way to go to heaven is through Jesus. Jesus would even say that He was the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And that might sound a little bit negative. But I don't think it's negative at all. I think it's positive. We talked earlier about all the different opinions that we hear out in the world, all the different answers to the question, how do you know Christ? 
Did you know that God has given us the answer? The one answer. Here Jesus says it. Knowing Jesus is what allows us to have eternal life. And Paul explains further that knowing Jesus involves abandoning our old life of sin, putting Him on in baptism, and walking in a new life with Him. That is the answer. I don't have to worry if, I, if my opinion is correct or, or am, I, am I listening to the right person for advice or, or am I following the right person here on earth. I can know for sure that I'm following the right person because the person that I'm following was 100% human, but he was also 100% divine. And when Jesus Christ lived on the earth, he was very open about the fact he was the way. And that message is still the same for us. It's not a negative one. It's a positive one. God has made it simple. He's made it easy. He's made it plain and open to all of us that Jesus is the way. And knowledge of Christ is what allows us to have an eternal life with Him in heaven. So this morning, do you know my Jesus? My Jesus rose from the dead to display that God had power over death and that this life wasn't all there is. Do you know my Jesus? My Jesus suffered a painful, humiliating, torturous death, but He did it for everyone in this room and everyone out of this room. Do you know my Jesus? My Jesus died and was raised from the dead so that every one of us could have the opportunity for eternal life. When John records the fact that that Jesus was sent because God loved all the world, that's not a figure of speech. God loved all of us. And that includes even those of us today who might be hearing this for the first time. I don't care if this is the very first time you've heard the message of Jesus. God loved you. That sacrifice was for you because it was for all of us. And every single one of us can leave here today with the right relationship with Jesus. Do you know my Jesus? Would you like to? You can. Every single one of us can as we think about the beautiful picture Paul paints in Romans chapter 6. The most exciting part of that is not just dying to our old self, having our old self crucified in the waters of baptism. The exciting part is what happens after that, when we start walking in that faithful life. You know, we can all leave here today walking in that faithful life. There's no reason for any of us to leave and not have a right relationship with Christ. And so no matter where you are spiritually, or no matter where you are in life, every single one of us, has a great deal to think about as we ask that question. Do you know my Jesus? And if you want to begin that walk with Christ, if you want to begin that Christian life, there's no better time than right now. As we sing this song, if there's anything we can help you with, please come as we stand and sing together.